I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast, brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome, everyone. This is episode 91. Like always, the first Friday of the month is our first Friday Q&A. This allows you guys to ask us questions, and hopefully we provide you some good answers. Welcome in, Jake. Hey, what's going on, man? Nothing. So uh, if you're just now joining us, uh, Jake, who are you? Who am I? Well, Mark, we go back a few years. Uh, I've been in the oil and gas industry for the past, what, three, three and a half years. Uh, ran a uh, tech startup in the oil and gas space. Um, of kind of stealthily running another one or planning to launch another one here in, the, in 2017. Um, currently doing some consulting within this space. Uh, I'm a and, car guy. I love fitness. And and now you're the co-host of Oil & Gas This Week. And now I'm the co-host here. Yeah, so this is exciting. So I've, I've gotten a lot of people messaging me on LinkedIn saying, you know, hey, congrats on the, on the new gig. Um, gotten a lot of good feedback from the first episode so far. We haven't had any hate mail. I'm still <laughs> waiting for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. So welcome aboard again. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback of you joining on the show. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into uh, a little bit of banner here. So this is actually interesting. What do you have here, Jake? So, uh, a lot of you probably heard this week that OPEC finally agreed after two years to slash production. Well, it's, it's mostly slashing production. A few of the countries were able to actually walk away, uh, producing a little bit more, but most of them are actually agreeing to cut production. And so we've seen, a, I don't know the, the exact number, but I know oil was at, what, the WTI was 5150 today? 5150, yeah. And that's just based on the speculation of how this is going to affect things. Um, this could be interesting to see what's going over because the government's still uh, looking to, um, uh, I say the government, the government of Saudi Arabia is still looking to modernize their economy and privatize part of Saudi Aramco. So this is, I think, kind of a multi-pronged approach. One thing they'd like to see the global price creep up so it increases their margins. I think they're looking at, if everybody chips in and does what they say, looking at dropping about close to 500,000 barrels per day from total output. But at the same time, this higher oil revenues will um, act as kind of like a bridge for their economy so they're not as oil-dependent, which will then increase the IPO price of whatever parts of Saudi Aramco they decide to spin off. So... Pretty smart on their part, and it's actually, um, you know, it's a good thing for the U.S. producers and, and for the global producers as well. So do you think this is going to speed up the uh, the prices coming back yeah, up? Yeah, but we're, we're not going to have, like, the rapid rebound to $80 a barrel. This is, I think, it's going to fit right into what we've been saying, where we're going to stay in that $50 to $60 a barrel range for an extremely long time. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's a, we've run so many efficiencies out of uh, upstream, especially that at, you know, 50, 55, $60 a barrel, people can make money. And not only can people make money, Jake, but then the population of the world benefits because energy prices stay low. So it's sort of almost a win-win situation. And, and yes, I know people have lost their jobs. I know there's been laid-offs, and, and I hate to see people suffer. But long-term wise, I think this is good for the industry. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think... Just seeing, uh, just seeing the prices jump up in one day, I think it's a, a sign of good things to come. I think hopefully 2017 will be a little bit more stable. I think the the worst has already come, and hopefully it's just going to stable out from here on out. Yeah, um, speaking of that, we just uh, yesterday released our um, oil and gas predictions for 2017. So we'll get Jake to put a link in the show notes if you want to watch that. We, uh, we think 2017 will be a great year in a lot of ways. Awesome. So on the road, so what do we got up there? 
Yeah, so got a bunch of stuff going on. You and I could be at Geo Convention in uh, Calgary, Canada, May 15th and 19th. We're um, actually opening the, the lunch. Um, and the cool thing is uh, Geo Convention has figured out that we're creeping back up in crude prices, that companies out there want to get in front of new clients quickly, and they're a great opportunity to do that. So they cut us a deal. If you want a booth space on the floor, which is normally 1800 bucks for 10 by 10 for our listeners, it's $1,600. Uh, Jacob puts uh, everything in the show notes. Basically, you just reach out to Dustin at geoconvention.com and say you want a booth, and they'll set you up. They're also looking for lunch sponsors, which is a prime way if you can get in front of a whole bunch of people. So you may want to talk to Dustin about that as well. And then the whole podcast gang is slighted. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff on the plate this year, Jake. So, so far, we're going to the Mid-Continent Digital All-Field Conference in January. Uh, we have Nape Summer here in Houston in February. And then the Process Safety and Oil and Gas in March. So, um, the, the podcast crew is going to be getting around. If you would like us, like me and Jake or any of our other podcasts, uh, to come uh, visit with your uh, your company, with your social club, you know, if you have a sales and marketing meeting, whatever, reach out, let's talk to us, and we'll be happy to share the details. Yeah, if you guys never been to uh, NAPE or OTC or any of the other oil and gas events, uh, we, we keep getting a lot of questions as to what you know what should I do if I'm new to the industry, and that's the number one thing is just get out there, network, uh, just get involved in the oil and gas community, uh, professionally and personally, uh, and it's really going to further your career. Yeah, and it's also a great way to learn, especially like if you learn if you know part of this industry, say upstream, but your company and your people have no exposure downstream. Go find some downstream events and go to. I promise you, people will be happy to share, teach you about stuff. It's a quick way to get ramped up on different parts of the industry. All right, so let's roll into our questions. We got a whole bunch of questions from you guys, uh, so we're going to try to answer as many as we can in the time that we have. Uh, our first question up uh, is from Nicole McMurr who is a data analyst for an energy intelligence company here in Sugarland called Genscape. Yeah, I know Genscape uh, well. All right. So she says, hey, Mark, I love hearing your enthusiasm for big data and data science on the show. I agree with you that big data analytics is the way of the future and is currently underutilized not only in our industry, but many others. As you know, one large obstacle that our industry faces is labor disparity, where skilled positions are needed but undersupplied. I was wondering if you know any way to get involved directly with the youth of Houston. Data science is a really unique craft in the sense that you don't necessarily need a formal four-year education to start coding, as there are many online resources that can get someone started. I would love to work with kids to show them how easy it is to not only get started coding, but to become really good at it. Yes. What do you think, Mark? So, so actually, um, she sent this in a while back. I've actually connected her with several people in the Houston area um, that actually uh, work with underprivileged youth trying to bring in new um, opportunities to them. And I think she's actually running with one of them. Um, th there's a lot of, um, of, of positive places um, that, that you know, Nicole, that you and your company can play in. Um, um, there, there's uh, through the API Houston chapter, we work with uh, local high schools. So there's another place that I can plug you in at. And then um, th there's a, a group of, um, of entrepreneurs uh, actually here in Houston, which would be another place to help reach out to. But Jake, you got some good stuff here too. Yeah. So a little known f fact about me is I was a computer science major. So I've actually written a little bit of code in my life. Uh, so She's absolutely right. Data science is going to completely change uh, the way that oil and gas is run upstream, midstream, and downstream. It's not only changing this industry, but a, a lot of different industries because we're actually learning from historical data. Um, but so say so say if you want to you want to learn how to code. She's absolutely right. You don't need a formal four year education. Most companies these days 
it's especially like the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples and stuff, they don't necessarily care as much about your degree. They care more about what you can actually build. Um, and so if you can have a portfolio of stuff like on GitHub, that's really what they care about the most. Um, so if you want to learn how to code, it really depends on the first question you have to ask yourself is, are you a self-starter or do you need some kind of guidance and direction? If you're a self-starter, there's wonderful tools. I'm going to put them all in the show notes. Codecademy uh, is one of my favorite ones. Uh, I've used that many of times. Um, Code School, Thinkful, Code.org, all of those are great. I believe three of those are free. I think one's paid, but it's it's relatively uh, inexpensive. And then there's also coding boot camps. There's, there's, there's the Flatiron School here in Houston. I think they're also nationwide, and there's a couple of different other ones. Um, there's some that are online only. There's some that you can actually go to a classroom and do coding boot camps. But all those are fantastic ways to actually learn how to to get into writing code. Yeah, and so, uh, Jake, I plugged uh, Nicole in with the South Union Community Development uh, Corporation here in Houston, and I, and I think she's running with it. So, Nicole, if that's working for you, great. Um, if, if you need some help with other stuff, reach out to Jake and I because we love people like you who want to give back, and we'll do whatever we can to help you. Fantastic. So our next question, on to the next one. Here we are. Uh, comes from Sean DeAndrea. Hopefully I pronounced that right. He's a student out of Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. He writes, hey guys, love the podcast. Very informative as it keeps me informed of current industry news and introduces me to new and interesting topics. I found your podcast about six months ago and haven't missed an episode since. I previously worked as a driller and a directional driller here in Western Canada, and I went back to school at the onset of the current industry downturn. I graduate from a petroleum engineering technology program this spring, and I'm currently looking for an upstream field or possibly office position. I'm looking to work in Texas. He put in quotation, it's a dream of mine. Of course it is. Uh, But the postings uh, I've come across specifically state that there is no sponsorship available. Do you know where I might be able to search for companies that sponsor out-of-country workers? Or do you even think this is realistic? Yeah, so so great question, Sean. So the 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 bottom line is right now that the very end of 2016, you're not gonna find people that are gonna sponsor you. But that part of the industry is going to have a talent shortage at the end of 2017. And because of that talent shortage, people will start sponsoring you. Uh, My suggestion to you is to start reaching out. LinkedIn's a great tool for that. And don't look for a job. Don't ask for companies to sponsor you. Start making connections with people that would have an interest in what you do. This is going to be probably the mid-sized drilling companies, the ones that are going to struggle the most if we get into a talent war because they don't have the deep pocketbooks of the bigger companies. Um, look at uh, the companies that are doing well and all the major plays out there and just start a relationship. Start a relationship with the operation managers, right? The guy that would need you. And then as the price creeps up and as we start having a talent constraint at the end of 2017, it's just going to make perfect sense to bring you on board. And the, the attitude, honestly, here in Texas – which is, um, thank you for wanting to come here. It is a dream of mine as well, and we're living the dream. Um, but they don't look at Canada as another country. It's it's like just part of the oil and gas industry. So from a cultural point of view, it's going to be much easier if you get somebody to sponsor you to come from Canada to Texas than if you were in some place like you know Nigeria or you know Australia or something. So you can do it. It's just going to take you a little bit of time. Fantastic. All right. Our next question up is from, I knew this name looked familiar. So this is from Stephen Tainer. So if you remember, he was our uh, bulwark winner last week. So Stephen wrote us a, well, not just one question. He wrote us about five or six questions. So (laughs) we're going to try to break these down uh, to make sure that we answer these uh, instead of, you know, it's getting lost in in a whole bunch of questions. Uh, So 
if you remember correctly, Stephen is a production engineer over at Chevron. Um, and so starting off question one, he wrote, it's no surprise restrictions for producing oil and gas in California keep getting tighter and tighter. But I'm curious as to how far this will go and or the impact uh, the industry will, will this impact of the state on the industry. Uh, my current theory is that the state wants to make cost of productions as high as green technology to make the use of green technologies more competitive and persuasive. Obviously, the consequences of this are vast and large, but I'm curious as to, on a bigger scale, how this will impact California's economy. How will it affect California as a strong refining location and, on a bigger scale, the oil supply in America? I am concerned the cost of doing business will keep rising without much expected increase in the price of oil. Yes, Stephen. So you're spot on. So that's exactly what's going on. It's not necessarily the state of California. It's the politicians in the state of California. What they're doing is they're adding taxes and restraints and tariffs to oil and gas so that the cost is actually the same or higher than green energy. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. And and they've been doing it for years. Unfortunately, they don't understand the long-term consequences of that. So long-term consequences, quite frankly, is the cost of business gets too much and big companies pull out of California and relocate. A lot of them are coming here to Texas. I mean, it's, it's a yearly occurrence where you know a Fortune 1000 co- corporation pulls out of California and comes here. There goes all those jobs. Um, the other thing that uh, the politicians don't understand is that when you start increasing the price of transportation, which is what happens when you when you hurt oil and gas, you're now increasing the cost of everything. Food, diapers, basketballs, shirts, swimming pool chemicals. And once again, that just is not good for the economy. Now, you talked about the refining. That's actually a really interesting thing. So there's only a handful of refineries in California, and there are no more. Nobody can afford the legalese and the money to build anything new. So those existing refineries, like Chevron has one in El Segundo and Richmond, and there's several others, they basically have a chokehold on the market, right? There's a constraint, an artificial constraint created by the government in California, which makes it impossible for these refineries to have competitors come in. Well, guess what happens when you set up a market where no competitors can come in? Prices go up. So California pays the most for fuel than anybody for that exact reason. So long-term wise, is it a win-win situation for the people in California? No, it's a lose-lose situation. Will it change? I don't know. Um, But the bottom line is, as these companies realize the cost of business is so um, uh, high over there and they move out, all that uh, economic benefit just goes to other states. So, you know, hopefully California realizes what's going on. If they don't, other states could benefit from it. Yeah, I miss California, but I don't miss the gas prices. Yeah, I love California. In fact, I just came back a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of the most beautiful areas in the world, um, but the infrastructure's falling apart. They can't repair their roads. There's potholes in the interstates. Um, it's just horrible because so much of the money goes to unneeded social programs versus money that goes back to their citizens. And Jake, what's unfortunate about it, if you look at all the states in the, in the United States, if you look at them as individual countries, California makes more, more money than any of them. And yet they're, they're falling apart because of all this misguided spending. And, um, you know, I, that's that's the, what the people of California want, so that's what they get. It's, um, it's one of the things I get a lot because I have a lot of tech companies that come from the Valley. Is when they come here in Houston, they're amazed at our infrastructure. It's like, oh my God, you have 10 lane highways and there's no potholes and they're everywhere. It's like, yeah, because we run the state like a business. So that <laughs> that would be the benefit to California. I don't think it'll change anytime soon. Um, I think it'll stay that way, which is kind of unfortunate for the people that live there. I think I'll eventually move back to California, but I'm not looking forward to paying income tax again. Or ad valorem tax on your car, you know, or, you know, you're paying a million dollars for a house that here in Houston you can get for $250,000. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's 
the cost of living is significantly higher there, so you're paying for the scenery. All right, on to Stephen's uh, next question, number two. Uh, this is kind of going back to what we talked about in the the last episode. Uh, he writes, "How will Trump's presidency affect the oil and gas industry in America and globally? Do you have any insights as to who the next energy secretary uh, will be? Uh, what kind of qualities, attributes, attitudes do you think the next in- secretary of energy should have?" Um, so I, th- I think the first thing you should do is you should go back and listen to our episode that we released, what was it, like a week ago? Yeah. I think it was episode 90. We kind of go in depth in that. Um, but then we also, kind of digging around and looking at the rumors, there's nothing set in stone for the Secretary of Energy here, but we do have three names that are being thrown around. Um, so the first one off is going to be Harold Ham. Most people in oil and gas are kind of know the name. I mean, he's a 70-year-old oh, yeah, they know billionaire. Him. He's a legend. And, yeah, he's the, he's the CEO of Continental Resources, if you don't know. Uh, mostly known for being the most successful fracking entrepreneur in the industry, um, and we were we were chatting about this early before we started recording that you know he made a, I think it was anywhere between two and three billion dollars on Tuesday, uh, whenever OPEC actually agreed to to slash production. Um, so it's nice little fun fact, dude. Something we can all strive for, right? We're gonna get there one day, Jake, where we say something <laughs> on the podcast and we both become two or three billion dollars richer. Oh, that'd be nice. So he's the first one up. Uh, second one is Donald Hoffman, and he's been a part of Trump's leadership council since March. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Excel Services Corporation, which is a nuclear engineering and consulting firm that he founded back in 1985 after serving, I think it was nine years in the Navy, followed by four years at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, Jake, is it wrong for us to say squid? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Nobody gets it but Marines. Yeah. Uh, And so in the third person, uh, you know, everybody here in Texas knows this guy. So I don't know if anybody else outside of Texas knows him, but uh, it's the former Texas governor, Rick Perry. He was also the two time presidential candidate. Uh, I think he was running for, was it 2008, 2012? Yep. uh, If I remember right. Uh, The funny thing about Rick Perry is that whenever he was running, uh, particularly the last time, he uh, was trying to really do away with the Department of Energy, and now he's rumored to possibly be the Secretary of Energy. And I will tell you, it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. No, so they're all three better than what we used to have, right? So they're all three business people that understand at least parts of the energy industry. Unfortunately, Donald Trump doesn't call me and ask my opinion on things. I wish, I wish kind of maybe he would. Maybe he listens. Um, maybe he listens. That's true. Maybe some of his people listen. Um, in, in my, I'm a big fan of Rick Perry. I really am. Um, he's just a little too much of a Texas Republican to get a lot of consensus, which is what the energy secretaries have to have. Um, I would vote for him second. Donald Hoffman, um, uh, um, you know, thank you for your service. All squid jokes aside. Um, the, the issue is, though, he's been on the NRC side and, and doesn't really understand oil and gas. So my vote would be for Harold Helm. Um, anybody that can run a successful oil and gas business through ups and downs and has done it several times knows how to run a business. And that's probably the biggest trait that the Secretary of Energy needs. What makes the most business sense for the people in the U.S.? Balancing um, cheap, abundant energy, balancing environmental impact, environmental um, you know, um, mitigation type stuff. You know, What is the best mix? What is the best mix of our tax dollars? What should we subsidize? Should we continue to subsidize ethanol through the re- renewable fuel standards? I say no. Should we continue to subsidize solar and wind? 
Yeah, you know, that's coming along. It's getting cheaper and better. It has its place in our energy mix. So, you know, I think we should keep that checkbook open for a little bit longer. But I, we need somebody that can do this from a business point of view, not from a political point of view. And, and I think my vote would be for Harold Hamm. But all three of them would be better than historically. We've always had politicians in there that don't know anything about energy. Yeah, if I was Trump, I would choose Harold Hamm in a heartbeat over the other two, just because... For one, he has the experience in the oil and gas industry, uh, and two, I mean, he's just a successful entrepreneur, so I think him and Trump would jive pretty well. Yep, I agree. So what's next? All right, moving on to the next one, so the, or the next question, I guess. This is still from Stephen. Uh, so what advice would you give to younger professionals who are new to the workforce? Yeah, so let me tell you the number one thing. I do this a lot. I mentor a lot of young people that come to this industry. It used to be that education mattered for a whole lot, and it still matters some, but nowhere near like it does did. The biggest thing you can do if you're entering the workforce is get some real work experience while you're in school. Uh, preferably, that's a paid internship, right, that somehow touches what you want to do or what your major's in. Um, but if you can't do it as a paid internship, reach out to oil and gas companies, say you'll do it for free. That work experience, even though it's only maybe six hours a week for a semester, puts you way ahead of all the MBAs and all the people with better grade point averages than you. Um, that real hands-on work experience is unbelievably vital. And it just takes a little bit of effort on your part to get it done. Um, and you may not know this, but every oil and gas company I know of, big, medium, and small, has internship programs. Typically, you need to apply a year ahead of time, and you need to pay attention to what's going on geopolitically. So right now, your odds of getting an internship with the upstream service companies, you know, the Halliburton's and Slimmerys and Bakers, are less than it would have been five years ago. However, the downstream service companies, the petrochemical plants, the ethanol crackers, they have money everywhere. So if you know that, you know where to spend your efforts trying to pick up an internship. And I think that's probably one of the best things you can do. And then, Jake, you're going to jump into networking, aren't you? Because that is awesome and vital. Yeah. So the only caveat to that is me being a young professional, me being, I, st I feel still like I'm, feel like I'm relatively new to the oil and gas industry. You know, every day in oil and gas, you realize you don't know as much as you thought you did. Um, one, th one of the things that was, I think, crucial to, to my success and really to getting out there and networking and just learning more about the industry uh, was just getting getting to become a part, you know, becoming members or just attending events. Uh, it could be, you know, young professional type events like APIYP, shameless plug. You know, hey, if you guys haven't checked us out, go to api-yp.org. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, but there's also good ones, other other good, other good organizations out there as well. Uh, Young Professionals and Energy, I've been to some of their events. Those are fantastic. Uh, I think SPE has a Young Professionals group. They do. Um, okay, so then they have one. They also have just the main SPE events. Uh, I don't think IPAA has a Young Professionals group. They nope, might. but they're working I don't on know. it. Okay. Yeah. So you can go to some of their events as well. I would just go to as many events as possible um, just to constantly educate yourself on the industry, get networked. Yeah. This is still a business of people doing business with people, even though it's global, and it's enormous. It's one of the things I do when I'm mentoring people is I'll bring them to the API meeting and I'll start introducing them to people who then later will introduce them to people. And pretty soon this you know 20 year old kid that's still in college has a network of 300 people that work in oil and gas. And guess what that does to him when he's looking for a job? That gives him 300 people that his peers don't have that he can reach out that he has a personal relationship with. And not only for looking for a job, but let's say you're a new engineer. Let's say you're a new petroleum engineer and you enter the industry and you get stuck with something. Wouldn't it be cool if you had some older engineers that have done this for 20 or 30 years in your network so you could ping them instead of pinging your boss? So, yeah, I agree with you, Jake. Networking is vital. You have to get out there and do it. You can't buy it. Uh, you can't do it online. Um, so, yeah, find some groups, join, and, and participate. Don't just show up, but participate. 
Yeah, so I'm a perfect example of that. So I go I go listen to Mr. Mark LaCour speak about sales drivers in oil and gas, and then three years later, I'm on the podcast with him. Yep, perfect example. Uh, so perfect example. And then not to mention APIYP, oil and gas entrepreneurs. Uh, and then all just came through networking yeah. and just people people reaching out and you know wanting to, to collaborate on things. Yeah. And it, so, Stephen, hopefully we answered all of your questions. Yeah, and Stephen, you, you, next time you get some type of limit. Um, I mean, I appreciate all the questions. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to cap you at four like we did this time. <laughs> all right, so the next question is from Andy Lash, who is a crude and LPG regional manager for Gemini Motor Transport. He writes, great show. I really enjoy and appreciate the information. How much do you think it... How much do you think Tay or uh, how much do you think take or pay exposure is changing oil prices, if any? Do you see this changing in the future with contracts expiring and the court cases currently in the works? Yeah, it's a good question. It's um so you're getting some kind of deep contractual language. A lot of people don't understand that uh, there's hundreds of layers of both cost and profitability in this industry. There's probably 20 layers of cost and profitability before the crude even gets out of the ground. And so there's a bunch of ways that people mitigate their risk contractually to, 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 to um, make sure they don't overexpose themselves, right? So for every three deals you make money on, maybe only one do you lose, and that way you still make money. The problem is in the future, there's some changes going on. And, and Andy, I think I know exactly what you're talking about because there's several court cases where several operators are trying to get out of their long-term contractual commitments to the pipeline companies, to the midstream companies, which is fundamentally how the pipeline companies fund their business. Um, these court cases have not been decided yet. If the courts decide on the side of the operator, it will fundamentally change the way the midstream makes money in the U.S., which is going to change the take-or-pay exposure. So, yeah, Andy, if, if, if one or both those court cases lean toward the operator, it's going to fundamentally change the financial dynamics of, of the midstream company. And unfortunately, it's going to increase the cost for everybody because they can't take the risk of building a $6 billion a year pipeline and, and losing money at it. Um, I see both sides of the issue. I see that the operator's trying to get out from this long-term contractual commitment because they're trying to keep their company running and they're trying to keep their people working, and I get that. But at the same time, the pipeline companies have an obligation to keep their people running and, and, and their company running. And bottom line is the operator signed the contract. They could have negotiated whatever they wanted. They agreed to that contract. So um, for me, my I side, and like I said, I see both sides, but I side actually with the pipeline company. So we're keeping an eye on this. This is something that's big um, that can fundamentally change stuff. We're not, we don't know where it's going to go yet. So we're just, we're just going to pay attention to it and we'll let you know when, when and if something happens. All right, next up. Cody Harris, who's a second year in petroleum engineering at LSU. Uh, I think this question is going to kind of go back to what we just said for one of Stephen's uh, questions. But he wrote, in a tough job market, what are some things we students can do to stand out early on in our programs? Yeah, so Cody, you're actually in a better place than you think you are. Um, because this is all new to you, it's scary, right? Uh, a bunch of first and second year petroleum engineers have gotten laid off in the last two years, and you're halfway through school, and it doesn't look like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Cody, there's so much light at the end of your tunnel that you don't know what to do. Because what's going to happen is the price could come back. There's not enough engineering talent in this industry as a whole, especially um, very unique engineers like a petroleum engineer. And the petroleum engineers that have left, unfortunately, um, are not coming back, right? Because it's a different generation and they do things differently, which means there's going to be shortage of petroleum engineers probably right around 2018. And Cody, that's right when you graduate. So um, you're in a much better place than you think you are. Now, I will, I agree with you, Jake. He needs to go back. He needs to start networking. He gets needs to get to know people in the industry, not just his peers in college. Um, and then he also needs to start attending some events. Cody, if I'm not mistaken, there's an SPE LSU chapter 
uh, at your school in Baton Rouge. Uh, if you don't know those guys, go find them, go track them down, tell them I sent you your way. Go join and start participating in that. That's that's something that will help you. And then finally, Cody, if you can find an internship somewhere in the next couple of years, um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of oil and gas um, companies headquartered all around Baton Rouge, um, all the way down to Lafayette and Homa. So, um, you know, spend some time reaching out to people. And if you can pick up an internship, that's just another feather in your cap. So next up, this isn't really a question. This was more so uh, one of our listeners helping out some other listeners who had some questions a while back. I think it was in the last uh, First Friday Q&A. Uh, his name's Jordan Frisbee. He's an economic analysis analyst, economic analyst from the Port of Houston Authority. Uh, he writes, I'm part of a group of nonprofit entities looking to increase exports as part of a global cities initiative. I heard on your podcast a few weeks back that listeners Leroy Grigg and Tom Brodsky were looking for resources to start exporting. It turns out that there are a lot of resources out there for companies that are looking to export. So Jordan sent us over a two-page PDF that we can put a link to in the show notes to, at least for those two listeners, if anybody else is interested, feel free to check that out. Mark, yeah. do you have anything to add yeah, to that? So that's awesome, Jordan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for doing this. So basically, Jordan is going to give you a list of resources if you want to start exporting um, out of the port of Houston. I mean, that's that's so freaking valuable. So yeah, if, if you're even if you're not looking to export, but you have a company that would benefit from exporting, you ought to at least check this out. It might be another revenue stream that you haven't even considered. So hats off, Jordan, for sending this our way. Next up is Alexander Klapas financial analyst at one plus capital out of cyprus and no that's not cyprus texas that's cyprus the <laughs> country i believe yeah uh, i was curious about your thoughts on natural gas findings around the mediterranean specifically noble energy and bp's findings around israel and cyprus do you see natural gas being utilized by these two eight nations who are new to the market that's an easy one to answer yes <laughs> <laughs> so um um that part of the mediterranean um those countries need for electrical generation, the need is going up. One of the best ways to generate electricity with the least amount of impact to the environment is natural gas. Up until just recently, the natural gas supply to Israel and Cyprus was limited, which means the prices were high. So this is almost like perfect karma. Um, BP made a huge discovery, um, and naturally they're going to go into production and they're going to bring it to the closest market to make the most money. And that closest market is going to be Israel and Cyprus. So, so yeah, this is this is great for the people. It's going to be great for the environment. It's great for the people that work at the companies that are getting this gas out of the ground. So this is kind of a win-win all the way around. So next up is from Matt Lehman. He wrote, hey, I got a question for y'all's first Friday Q&A, uh, kind of going back to the Donald Trump uh, topic that we were talking about last podcast. He wrote, Donald Trump has won the presidency, and throughout his campaign, he has said he'll be very pro-oil and gas. One of the things he said he'd like to do is open up more federal land to drilling. However, given the current state of the oil and gas market, does this really help the industry at all? Will it ever make sense for companies to start up operations in areas where there is little to no infrastructure compared to places like the Permian? And are there significant swaths of federal land that are currently undeveloped that oil, oil and gas companies would like to get it into, but currently can't due to cost and or regulations? Yeah, so I get this question a lot. And, and a, a great question, Matt. The thing is, you got to back up and look at the bigger picture. Just because a new prospect opens up, you know, some new development lands opens up, whether it's federal land opened up by Donald Trump or uh, developers or, or whatever, it doesn't mean they'll go in production. Everybody's fear is that when you open up lands for exploration and production, that people are start producing, which is going to oversaturate the market, which is going to drive costs back down. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so nobody's going to spend the money um, to go uh, um, 
do the exploration production unless the cost is at a point where they know they can make some money. So it's kind of checks and balances. What the real benefit of this is, is Donald Trump, is if, if he pulls this off, which I'm confident he will, is now increasing the number of recoverable reserves in the world, but specifically in the U.S. Doesn't mean we're going to go into development yet, but the, the amount of recoverable reserves has to go up. Now, that is money in the bank, even though it's sitting in the ground. And it gives us the ability to use oil prices, if we need to, as a weapon. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but in the downturn of 82, um, was not due to market prices. It was due to Ronald Reagan, uh, who one of favorite presidents, uh, right in the Marine Corps when he, he came in, um, working with the crown. You prince, just dated yourself. I know, right? <laughs> working with the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, saying, "What are we going to do about the Soviet Union thing?" And Ronald Reagan was smart enough to go, "You know what? They had this massive military machine, but it's funded by oil and gas. What happens? We cut off the funding." So that's what exactly what they did. Now, it hurt a lot of the oil and gas operators in the U.S., no doubt, but it crumbled the Soviet Union. They're gone now because of that. By opening up this land and giving us more recoverable reserves, if somewhere in the future we need to do that again, we have the ability to do that. So don't worry about it driving costs down. It will not drive costs down because the price has to be at a certain point for them to actually go into production. And, and you bring up the infrastructure. All that's figured in. Um, you know, when Anadarko goes into a new basin, they look at the cost of everything. And if it doesn't make sense, they're not going to go in production. Um, so good question. No fears. It, this is all good stuff. All right. So let's move on to our uh, bulwark giveaway for the week. So we have a winner. We actually have two winners because Jake and I skipped a week because of the holidays. So our first winner is Jordan Woods, a drilling engineer at Precision Drilling. Our second uh, uh, winner is, is Hargain Austin, geologist at Arcadis. Both of y'all have won the bulwark long sleeve two-tone base layer, which has become the fashion accessory in oil and gas in 2016 and 2017. If you would like to win your own two-tone base layer, it's very simple. You go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast. That's B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information and hopefully we'll draw your name next week. Great. On to the events on deck. So if you haven't signed up for Mark's monthly email, uh, go to modalpoint.com. Check it out. Put in your email. He's going to blast it out. What do you, you send it out once a month, right? Yeah, once a month. I have my interns take all the oil and gas events found on the interweb, put them in one place, and put them in your inbox every month. This way, you don't have to search for stuff. You can figure out which ones are worth your time, worth their not. Uh, we got a handful of them we're going to go through real quick. We have the Rice Alliance IT Web and Ventures Forum, January 19th. Uh, if you want to get into the whole uh, IT web mobile software stuff, this is the place to be. Jake will stick a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Um, we also have Trend Supplier Markets. That's in uh, December 9th. Friday. Um, it's at the Grand Hall Rice University here in Houston. If you want to understand what's going on in the energy sector commodities, this is the place to be. And then, of course, we have my beloved API Houston luncheon on December 13th. I'll be there. If you go, hit me up on Twitter. I'll let you sit at my table and I'll introduce you to people. And then the leaders in the industry luncheon on December 14th, the day after. Once again, a great place to be if you want to network with oil and gas business leaders. And Jake will stick a link to all of these in the show notes. And one more to add. I totally forgot to write this one down. It just came to the top of my head. We have an API YP open membership uh, meeting. I think it's going to be January 17th. We haven't decided where it's going to be yet, but for if you're a member or you're interested in being a member, uh, please come. It's going to be a chance for us to get feedback from you guys to figure out you know the direction that we want to go with the group, whether it's more indus industry tours uh, like we did with Halliburton and Philip 66 and the rig tour and stuff like that, or if we want more like professional development or more networking stuff. Um, so I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. I think we already have the RSVP up for that. Um, just stay tuned for where it's actually going to be held at. And like I said, I think it's on the 17th of January. So please come out. We would love to get some feedback from you guys. 
Yeah, and it's uh, $25 a year to join people. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't beat that. <laughs> it's worth it. Um, so um, first Friday Q&A, if you have an interest in getting us questions, and we would have a big interest in you giving us questions, that's pretty simple. It's uh, You go to tryrocket.com forward slash QA. Um, that link will be changing soon. And then also reviews. We've had to change some of our um, back office stuff and, uh, you know, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. So if you're listening to this and you can't find our feed, just search for it again and tap in the new feed. So we have some new feeds out there. You need to know that. Um, we may have lost all our reviews, which if we did, people, can you do me a favor? Even though you left us a review, can you go give us another review? Because we haven't kind of start this from scratch. We got some new shows to work, people. We got some really great podcasts coming online. It will come on 2017. So we're growing the network uh, more free quality information for you. And then we're updating the websites. It looks like each show is going to have their own website um, so that you can um, maximize your good quality time wherever you need to be. Um, if uh, you like what's going on, uh, join our LinkedIn group. It's the family for this podcast and all of our other podcasts is where we make all of our announcements first. We have a bunch of events coming out that's going to be invitation only and uh, hard to get into. And if you join the LinkedIn group, you'll be the first one to notified. Then if you like the show, can you do me a favor? Share it. You know, Send that company-wide email. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. Share it on LinkedIn. Um, if uh, um, We're going to stick some links in the show notes to make it a little bit easier for you. And Jake, I think that's about it. You ready to get out of here? Let's get out of here, man. All right, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. of government, yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, oh I can't, the third one I can't, sorry, <laughs> oops.